Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Data with episode 437 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down the latest and greatest from NXT and AEW. We have an absolute ton to talk about on today's show. Some big news in the world of AEW. Of course, you have them also building to Double or Nothing, NXT building to Battleground at the end of the month. A ton of stuff to discuss, and we are not going to waste even a moment getting to it. So allow me to remind you right off the top here that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about And what does that mean? It means we want those five-star ratings and reviews from all of you. You can leave the five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. On Apple, you can also leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. And even now on Spotify, they have a way that you can comment on individual episodes. So feel free to leave positive comments. I'll check those as frequently as I can. And when I see them, I will read those here on the show as well. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. It's always a good idea to do that for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, all of those things. But it's a great idea to do it on pay-per-view and premium live event weeks because we do pre and post show polls. We also do live shows on Twitter spaces. We'll be doing one of those on Saturday ahead of WWE Backlash. And again, if you want to interact, send us DMs, just talk to us during the major wrestling shows all week long. You can do it by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And lastly, before we get into the show, one other quick reminder for you. I happen to love the number five. And the price is right on that number five. If you head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, you get to become an official getting overhead bonus audio, news posts, interaction, so much more. You contribute to the show, you help us financially, but you also get a ton of stuff for doing it. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Link also in our bio on Twitter, at getting overcast. Like I said, an absolutely loaded show today. Let's get right to it. We're gonna talk AEW first, then we will go ahead and get to NXT on the back half of the show. If you only follow one brand or wanna hear about one brand or the other, You can hit our episode description for timestamps. We have them for every single episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. Now, before we get into breaking down AEW, the big news this week is the pre-sale for AEW All In at Wembley Stadium. And I do forget the exact parameters I put around my expectations for the pre-sale, but I think it was something along these lines. If they're able to do 30,000, that's really good. If they're able to do 45,000, that is very successful. And if they're able to exceed 60,000 tickets sold, that's going to be phenomenal. Well, after the first two days of presale, they're at 43,000 tickets sold for AEW All In, which means once we get through the presale and to the regular sale, you have to imagine they're going to get beyond 60. I know Wembley seats 90 or it can in theory. I can't imagine they're set up for 
more than 70 or something like that. But what's the difference? I mean, once you get past 60, whether it's 60, 65, 70, 75, it is just an astounding number of people that will be there to watch AEW all in at a great venue, the new Wembley Stadium. So congratulations to AEW for that. I do think there's a number of elements involved here. One of them being it is the first time despite three or four years of existence, I forget how long they've been around at this point, that they're going to Europe and they're actually going to be doing an AEW show and they picked a great venue to do it at. They also made the tickets extremely accessible from a pricing standpoint. So the confluence of all those things coming together really made this a perfect storm for AEW to be successful. And that's not, you know, people may take that as a knock. That is not a knock. That is extremely smart business by AEW, Tony Khan, Uh, if Jeff Jarrett was involved, perhaps in the ticketing portion of it, whoever over there is doing those things, um, just a phenomenal job, you know, identifying the venue, of course, and it's not tough to identify Wembley Stadium, but identifying it, getting it, the pricing model and realizing, hey, you know what, if we're going to go over there and we keep delaying it, the pandemic stopped us from going over as early as we wanted. Let's just go over there with a bang. Also bringing back the AEW all in name, which kind of tells you This is unlikely to just be an AEW show. It's most likely going to be a super show. So you're going to get, obviously, AEW and ROH talent, but probably New Japan talent. I wouldn't be surprised if they work out deals with Impact and some other um, promotions. I think it's going to be like a super show type of event. And that's one of the reasons that I think fans are so excited about it. And it's one of the reasons I think it's going to be successful because the following week, it still seems like AEW is going to hold all out, I believe in Chicago. So they're going to have to build for their own pay-per-view coming off of whatever this event is going to be. And there's a lot of rumors it may stream on the new Max streaming service, which is, you know, Warner Brothers Discovery, obviously HBO Max getting rebranded, adding all that content over there. Point is, This is just the perfect storm. It's a great situation for AEW. You know, you can say what you will about attendance declining. It is. You can say what you will about ratings declining. It is. And you can say what you will about them adding another two-hour show when they already have Rampage, which is just awful week to week. It is. I'm sorry. I know some of you really like it. Dynamite, still a fan. Rampage is extremely tough for me to watch every single week. Um, They are getting rid of AEW Dark and AEW Dark Elevation. Really good decisions, of course, if you're adding a two-hour television program. It still feels to me like they need to get rid of Rampage. I don't know that they're going to. I would love it if somehow Warner said, you know what, since you're going to be giving us four hours of AEW, why don't we turn Rampage into a Ring of Honor show? I think that'd be great. I don't know that they're going to. I don't know that it has the brand value to even get the number of viewers that AEW currently gets for Rampage. And that's not to mention Battle of the Belts and all the other stuff that they do. So we will see how this all shakes out. But again, for AEW All In, Wembley Stadium, it is already a massive success and it really has the potential to be a banger show if they book it the right way. In terms of people making comparisons to WWE, Clash at the Castle, Money in the Bank, you know, I don't necessarily think we need to contextualize AEW's success in the WWE prism, but there's a lot of just bullshit out there. So it kind of feels worth briefly mentioning what WWE has done, what they are currently doing and what they may do in the future. Regarding Clash at the Castle, yes, it was their first time over in the United Kingdom in quite a while for a major type of show. They overpriced the tickets, okay? They had enough demand on the pre-sale for Clash at the Castle where they would have sold out the show if the prices were, let's call them, 
relatively normal. They weren't. They were extremely successful. They sold a shitload of tickets. They made a shitload of money, but they didn't sell out because the prices were so incredibly and ridiculously high. Then WWE comes back over and they're deciding to do Money in the Bank in London. But instead of putting it in a soccer stadium or a football stadium, if you're over there, they're putting it at the O2 Arena, which obviously greatly reduces capacity. So you may say, well, if WWE is putting a big show over there, why didn't they run Wembley? Why didn't they run one of the other you know, big soccer or football stadiums over there? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they just tried to make Money in the Bank a stadium show in the United States last year, if you remember, in Las Vegas. They couldn't sell tickets to it. Now, there were other reasons for that holiday weekend. They put it on the same night as a UFC pay-per-view. There were a lot of really bad decisions that were made last year. But they just had shell shock from that a year ago. They certainly weren't going to take what they want to be their fifth biggest pay-per-view, but in reality is still very much kind of a B-show along with some of their other B-shows and put that in Wembley Stadium or an equivalent type of venue and expect to sell a shitload of tickets. Again, let me repeat, at the price that they want to sell their tickets. Now, if they took the same model as AEW did here with All In, I don't know that they could have gone to like a 90,000 seat stadium, but I do bet if they had gone to a 60,000 seat stadium and priced them appropriately, that even for money in the bank, they could have sold it out. But you can't look at it that way. It's not a failure for WWE to not have run Wembley more recently before AEW. It's not a failure that WWE didn't sell out Clash of the Castle, given how much freaking money they made from that show. And it's not a failure that WWE did sell out the O2 Arena and didn't run a bigger venue. None of that is a failure. But it is a success what AEW is accomplishing with All In at Wembley Stadium, and they deserve praise for that. I hope everyone contextualizes that properly. Felt like it was worth saying before we got into the full breakdown of AEW Dynamite and Rampage this week. On that note, let's get into the full breakdown of AEW and Dynamite Rampage from this week. We had Rampage with Ty Mello interrupting a Sammy Guevara interview to lay down the law saying, MJF is not your friend, we don't need the money, and you're being stupid. It kind of made Sammy look like a fucking moron uh, being scolded by his wife over something that's like blatantly obvious to anyone with eyes, ears, and a brain. On Dynamite, Sammy confronted MJF about the car deal from last week. MJF fake cried, saying that he lied because he has back pain from carrying the company on his back. He needed to lay down in the back seat. So Guevara forgave him, and then he kissed him twice on the forehead. And you might think, oh, that would be kind of funny if like, He was doing that, and then he was going to turn his back on him in the match later. He didn't. He just bought his bullshit again. Uh, Then they got excited about having mashed up theme music for the match. And look, they remain incredible together. They are a straight-up hysterical duo, and it's kind of a shame that it was only like a two- or three-week storyline of them being best friends, obviously fake the entire time from MJF's standpoint, because it worked so well. And it's also a shame that MJF as a character can never be trusted to have a real friend because it means he's this like lone wolf character that he may pay people to have his back or be friends with him. But in terms of like a real relationship, this is the first time we've actually seen him have something like that on AEW TV and know the Chris Jericho one doesn't count because MJF obviously was trying to use him. So it's simultaneously great television that we got them together, but super unfortunate that it had to last for such a short period of time. So moving over to Dynamite, we had MJF and Sammy against Darby Allen and Jungle Boy in the main event. 
The faces pumped themselves up backstage with Darby saying one of them would ultimately become AEW champion. They again got each other going in the locker room. When Darby left the locker room, MJF walked in, closed the door behind him, and reminded Jack he needs to cut out the goody two-shoes bullshit and betray Darby because it will benefit his career. He said Jack would lose the title match, but since he's not championship material, a spot next to MJF on the throne is the best he can do. So Jack gets in his face and he's staring him down. Darby walks in. He's suspicious, completely changes his mood. He refuses to dap up Jungle Boy and basically says, I'll go at it myself in the match. It it was a well-played bonus angle, but Darby looked like an idiot, not recognizing that Jack and MJF were staring each other face to face, like in a negative way. Like he was, he wanted to beat his ass. It's not like they were hugging each other and shaking hands. Like Darby just gets angry over the stupidest shit. And he, they're trying to make him this tweener character when all the fans want to do is cheer him. It's very odd what he has done with his character over the last three weeks. Uh, Now, this was appropriately the main event of Dynamite with 13 minutes left in the show. Commentary literally praised Tony Khan for deciding to stay with the match until we get a finish. They actually said, I don't know who it was. I think it was Tony Schiavone, quote unquote, congratulations, Tony. Great call. I honestly could not contain myself at the like filleting here. Holy shit. Uh, Jack had a great hot tag and nearly squashed Sammy on a powerbomb. Guevara came back with a nice top rope Spanish fly. Allen hit an awesome code red on Guevara. MJF then countered a similar attempt into a really sick powerbomb over his back. It was almost like a razor's edge powerbomb. It was awesome. Jack locked MJF in snare trap, but Sammy broke it. Then the heels tried to do stereo topes, but obviously MJF stopped short and didn't do the tope, which was a fun spot. MJF caught Jack back inside with a cradle spike brain buster, literally on the top of his head. Sammy hit a swanton bomb with MJF blind tagging for the cover. That pissed Guevara off. MJF then did the knee powerbomb with Sammy blind tagging, trying to get the cover, pissing MJF off. So MJF slapped him. Sammy super kicked his head off. Their friendship broke up. Jack then super kicked Sammy and hit the running forearm. But in a parallel move on the other side of the ring, uh, Darby blind tagged himself in and stole the fall by hitting Coffin Drop with Jack barely moving out of the way in time, getting the one, two, three to follow. Oh, and by the way, this match ended at 9.59. So there was no overrun. There was no reason to mention it. And there was no reason to congratulate Tony Khan on air for deciding to stay with the match. Uh, The match was super solid. The finishing sequence was super strong. Nice parallel booking with the heels and faces. It's of course been obvious for months that this was all leading to the four pillars fatal four-way. It was unfortunately convoluted over the last few weeks, but at least this went off without much of a hitch. In the end, MJF's going to retain the title. He'll probably beat Sammy to do it so the heels don't take an L, but we're almost certainly going to be in for a banger at Double or Nothing. On Dynamite, Brian Danielson with Blackpool Combat Club ranted backstage about the phrase, best there is, best there was, best there ever will be, saying it was a ridiculous phrase. He was better than the person who said it, and he is currently the best wrestler in the world. He also said he hoped Wheeler Yuta became better than him, and that's why BCC is different than the Elite, because they will do anything to raise everyone's game while the Elite only care about themselves. John Moxley then said the Elite used to be innovative, but have failed recently, while he can't wait to destroy Kenny Omega in the Steel Cage match next week. Straight up tremendous promo start to finish. Next week's match will obviously be a banger, and this was the perfect stage setter for it from the BCC side. Omega started cutting a promo on Mox when Don Callis took over, still angry about the hard way he took and how it gets him mad every day. 
He said his brain and Omega's talent will overcome Mox's heavy hand, uh, that he's a sick psychopath who will fall next week inside the steel cage. Omega promised everything would come to an end in Detroit because Mox made it personal. This wasn't as strong as the solo promo that we got from Omega, I think it was last week, but a good way to wrap up this chapter of the story leading into the steel cage match. On Dynamite, Adam Cole, Roderick Strong, Orange Cassidy, and Bandito fought JAS. Chris Jericho came out wearing the Britt Baker black eye shirt, then went on commentary. We'll talk more about that shirt in a moment. Orange countered into Stun Dog Millionaire. Strong went on a run after a hot tag. Then the whole match broke down with Cole eventually lowering the boom and getting the win. He immediately took off to the ramp and tackled Jericho out of his chair backwards through a curtain before security pulled him off. Cole was later shown being ejected from the building as Britt Baker yelled and eventually slapped Jericho. The match was kind of whatever for me. Like it was formulaic and kind of obvious, but I absolutely loved the post-match attack. He went from three count to Jericho's chair in like 10 seconds and absolutely leveled him. That was high intensity. It really picked up the storyline. And the show, this was the opening segment for the entire show. They did entrances for everybody. They finally got the match started. The match went long. It took like 25, 28 minutes until we got Cole attacking Jericho. And again, I'm not saying that the opening match was bad by any means, but it just felt like a lackluster start to the show. And then we got the attack and I was like, oh shit, here we go, Dynamite's on. So I, I don't know if they could have shortened the match or maybe reduced the entrances and given more time to other things, but I just wish that happened a little bit earlier in the evening, if that makes sense. On Dynamite, Soraya fought Willow Nightingale. First, on Rampage, the outcasts were wearing the Baker shirt with Soraya saying baby girl like five times while making fun of the baby faces. The heels completely ganged up on Willow with distractions the entire match. It was so egregious that it seemed impossible for the referee to not notice everything that was happening. Soraya took advantage and hit Rampage for the win. The outcast then attacked after the bell, only for Hikaru Shida to run down with a kendo stick and looked like she was going to you know, hold off the heels. Instead, she put it down and hugged Soraya. And just as they held Willow and Sheeta was about to spray her with the green hairspray or whatever that shit is, uh, Baker and Jamie Hayter ran in from behind for a double cross. The faces got up on the heels with Sheeta spraying them. Somehow, commentary knew that she sprayed AEW on the heels, despite it not at all being legible. Just as every single time they've tried to use this hairspray shit, it has never, ever once been legible. Uh, the match was super formulaic, just like the opener. And it's actually ridiculous that this trio of top-tier women's wrestlers can't even come close to winning matches clean. I mean, it's a distraction and interference fest when they wrestle every single time. It's okay for heels to use distraction and interference. I'm not saying it's not. But like for an entire match, constantly, every single you know beat of the match to be a distraction or an interference, it's ridiculous. It just is. Now that said, I love the post-match. I was literally writing a note about how it was a typical post-match attack only for a babyface to come and make the save, only to be surprised by like a double type of swerve. The initial heel turn made zero sense, of course, but they quickly paid it off. Solid way to set up and build what has long been moving towards a six-woman match. Probably blood and guts, if I had to guess. Plus, I think we're going to have, what is it, Hater and Soraya coming for double or nothing, given Soraya was in this match and got the win. So that's not nothing. That'll be fun as well. But it's really the six-woman match that is going to pay off this entire thing. Now, on the topic of the Britt Baker black eye t-shirt, this has been something going 
you know, wild throughout the entire IWC. Let me make this extremely clear. AEW produced a shirt that has a square picture of a woman with a black eye on it and nothing else. And if you are going to put a shirt like that out for sale, then it is completely understandable that fans will see that and think it is ridiculous. Not because it doesn't have a place on television, but because anyone who purchases that shirt and wears it out in public, the 99% of the population that does not watch professional wrestling and certainly does not watch AEW, which of course is just naturally smaller than WWE, but 99% of the population, if you were to wear that shirt to a mall or to a baseball game or walking your dog or whatever the case, all they're going to see is a random woman's face with a black eye on it. And they're going to think that you are supportive of like domestic abuse or something like that. Now, in the context of professional wrestling, Chris Jericho wearing the shirt, the outcast wearing the shirt on TV, it's totally fine. It makes sense. Everyone in the arena, Adam Cole, Britt Baker, they know they're making fun of Britt for having gotten a black eye from the heels. Makes all the sense in the world. Totally fine shirt for television. It is not a shirt you sell, and it is not a shirt as a fan you purchase and wear. Now, you may say, well, Silver King, what about the Bloodstone shirt with Stone Cold Steve Austin or the shirt that they sold with Britt Baker and the Crimson Mask? Well, there's differences between those. The Crimson Mask, I believe Britt Baker is doing a wrestling move in the shirt. You can see the ropes. It's clear she's a competitor and it's an athletic contest. Stone Cold Steve Austin, I believe the Bloodstone shirt, that face is on the back and Austin 316 in blood is on the front. Also, it was the late 1990s and everyone knew what that image was because everyone watched professional wrestling. It is a different time, okay? And it is a different context when it's a close-up photo of a woman with a black eye. And yeah, you you know, if it was the same shirt but a man, I would also say it's a dumb freaking shirt. Now, people wouldn't immediately think domestic violence when they see the shirt. They think, "Oh, why are you wearing a shirt of just some random dude with a black eye?" It would still be stupid. But there's a connotation when it's a woman. There, it just, there is, it's, it's natural. So, you know, Britt Baker coming out, I think two or three times this week, I don't understand why people are so up in arms about the shirt. They're not up in arms about the shirt on television. In the correct context, it is a completely fine shirt. But to sell to the general public and for people in the general public to buy that shirt and wear it out, it is just absolutely mind boggling to me. All they really had to do was put some context around the shirt. So for the heels on TV, you make the shirt just as it is with the picture, they get to make fun of Brit, whatever. But for the population, for your fan base, you put an AEW logo, you put a phrase underneath it, this is what the outcasts do. Or if, it, if it's Brit and you want it to be like, I'm a tough woman, you know, Brit Baker, tough as teeth, or you know, whatever the hell, you make it clear on the shirt that you are not making and selling a shirt of a battered woman. Because again, it is not about what the fan knows when they buy the shirt. It's what everyone else sees when they get to view the shirt out in public. So the hand wringing over it from AEW side, I don't understand why people don't like this shirt. I mean, you're stuck in a little silo if you don't understand why people don't like the shirt. Again, appropriate for AEW TV, not appropriate to sell to the public and for people in the public to purchase. I hope all of that makes sense for everyone. 
On Rampage, Cash Wheeler fought Jay Lethal. Everyone, including Mark Briscoe, was ringside. Wheeler caught Lethal Injection with his back and after an adjustment, hit a gory bomb. Sanjay Dutt distracted with Cash just choosing to stop the cover for some reason. Lethal ran him into the ropes, knocking Briscoe down before hitting Lethal Injection off the distraction for the win. Old school, slow wrestling match, fine for TV, should not have been the main event. The finish was sloppy and there was a really weird close-up camera angle like the entire second half of the match. Um, it was a rough end to a really bad episode of Rampage. On Dynamite, the heels arrived at Briscoe's farm wearing overalls and doing work on the farm. Briscoe's dad then walked up on them and told his son to keep his eyes on the heels other than Lethal because he knows they're friends. Dutt told Briscoe he got him a singles match on Rampage. Then Lethal made an official title challenge for the tag team titles. Other than seeing Satnam Singh in overalls, which was legitimately funny, this was dreadful. I mean, I saw people love this. And if you loved it, kudos to you. I didn't even find it funny in a corny way, but again, I did smirk seeing Satnam Singh in those huge overalls. On Rampage, the acclaimed and Billy Gunn fought three jobbers. Max Caster's rap, which was actually pretty solid, was longer than the match. This was one of three matches across a five-match card on Rampage where AEW talent fought local, non-contracted wrestlers. The episode was an absolute waste of freaking time. On Dynamite, House of Black in a video promo called for an open house saying, any three opponents could team up against them for the trio's titles. However, their house rules would apply. Those include a 20-second count, no rope breaks, and enforced disqualifications as decided by the challengers. The only strange part of this was how Julia Hart's spoken you know, section was a completely different tone than the other three guys. They're all deep and menacing, and she sounds like she's one of those hosts in a hotel room kind of telling you where the menu is and how to order room service and how to get new towels. It's just really, really odd. As for the concept here, I'm a little bit mixed. On one hand, I love the idea of House of Black creating house rules, their own set of rules and wrestlers having to like level up to them presented by Shazam Fury of the Gods in order to win the titles. On the other hand, there's plenty of trios in AEW. So it shouldn't really require random wrestlers teaming up to go after them. And that was proven out in literally the next segment on Dynamite when there was an entire trios battle royal that was booked on Friday without any lead-in. So on Dynamite, we got the Tres de Mayo trios battle royal. Powerhouse Hobbs eliminated the Lucha Bros and El Hijo del Vikingo. Then Acclaimed dodged him over the ropes. That left them, Dark Order, and then the Kip Sabian Butcher and Blade trio. Eventually, we got those heels against Anthony Bowens and Gunn. 59-year-old daddy ass staved off a three-on-one elimination. Bowens took out Blade and acclaimed hit stereo famousers before getting the eliminations and the win. This somehow was not a number one contendership, yet obviously that match makes the most sense and I'm sure they want to get acclaimed on double or nothing, so it's probably going to be House of Black against Acclaim. It was not a great battle royal though. In fact, it was actually kind of shitty. On Rampage, Ricky Starks and Sean Spears fought Jay White and Juice Robinson. White escaped the C4 and came back with Blade Runner on Spears for the win. Starks attacked him after the bell, and he brawled with Juice until Robinson ducked out of the ring to avoid a spear. White screamed that he owned the ring and Starks. It was fine. Spears taking the L so the feud can continue made sense. On Dynamite, Starks fought Robinson. This started hot with a lot of hard hitting outside. Ricky twice countered Juice's loose the second time for a spear, following with Rochambeau for the clean one, two, three. Can you guess what happened next? I'll tell you. White attacked immediately after the bell. Starks countered Blade Runner into a Rochambeau attempt, but Robinson saved him, and the heels limped off. 
it's weird how like mid card they have Jay White feeling as he gets started in AEW when he really should have been brought in with something much more prominent. You can argue that Roderick Strong was brought into a hotter, more important angle than Jay White was. The match was solid with a nice finishing sequence. I would assume we get this at double or nothing and hopefully they actually expand Bullet Club because it's kind of strange as a two-person team. On Dynamite, Wardlow fought a jobber. Wardlow slowly picked up the guy from a press power slam at the bell, following with a high-effort lariat and two power bombs and a squash. He grabbed the mic saying, there's a guy who wanted to cut the line but not get in the ring, so he declared a TNT open challenge, daring Christian Cage to bring out Luchasaurus because he hadn't broken a sweat yet. Christian basically said no and clarified it was he who wanted a title shot, not Luchasaurus. Just like I said in Wardlow's other title reign, and just like I said recently with Omos and WWE, it is patently ridiculous for these established wrestlers, in Wardlow's case, a title holder, to come out and just squash local jobbers rather than at least get in work against contracted talent. It's a waste of TV time. Just have Wardlow call out the heels. It does not need to be fronted by a match. It's like missionary position. The same thing over and over. It's the same thing over and over and over. It's like missionary position every single night. Okay, I transposed that, but you get what I'm trying to say. On Rampage, Matt Hardy backstage was complaining about Isaiah Cassidy disappearing. He was kidnapped by the firm who had him atop like Home Depot scaffolding or something. Matt finally gave them the date for their match at the Hardy compound, but Big Bill chokeslammed Cassidy off the scaffolding anyway. Between the fact that they were communicating through a TV in what was a terribly edited pre-tape, Isaiah being dropped 15 feet onto concrete without making a noise or bleeding or anything, and Matt's absolutely horrendous overacting. This was straight up excruciating to watch on a major wrestling television show. How could anyone see this, edit it together, and let it air in 2023? Zero point zero. On Rampage, naturally limitless, fought two jobbers. Dustin was moving really slow here. He threw one of the guys into Keith Lee for a spirit bomb and the win. Swerve Strickland and what's now called Mogul Embassy came out. Afterward was Swerve smirking and nothing else happening. It is tough to tell like the purpose of this tag team match. We're a few weeks away from double or nothing and we should be building to Keith against Swerve one-on-one. Reverting back to the Rhodes tag team was nonsensical. It made for bad TV and it wasn't even a feud. Hopefully this picks up some steam. I mean, unless the goal is for like naturally limitless to go after the ROH tag team titles or something, and that should never happen. This is just extremely odd. And lastly, on Rampage, Anna JAS fought Ashley D'Ambois. Uh, Anna won with Queenslayer in six minutes. The lights went out after the bell with Julia Hart attacking. Anna reversed her into the post outside, then bent her backwards with the post on her back. Anna looked better in the post match than she did between the ropes. Uh, the feud continuing is a big whatever. And this being the only women's match on Rampage when they have an entire division of contracted talent is just an absolute joke. So as you can tell, a lot of good, a lot of bad, a couple bits of ugly in AEW this week, but overall an incredibly successful week for them, primarily regarding AEW All In at Wembley Stadium. All right, so let's switch gears to NXT. Of course, they are building for NXT Battleground later this month. This was also... In some ways, you might call it the graduation episode of NXT with a number of talents having their last NXT matches, at least their last planned NXT matches before moving up to the main roster with positions on SmackDown 
and Raw. So let's just get right into it. Uh, Trick Williams was angry, cutting a promo in the ring saying Braun Breaker hospitalized Carmelo Hayes before going on about their history in high school. Trick said he'd sacrifice himself for Melo again if necessary, because Melo don't miss, but when he does, Trick cleans it up. They're like Shaq and Kobe. Uh, Braun put Trick over as being really tough for surviving his attack last week, saying that Braun never wants to represent the stupid NXT fans ever again, but to ensure Melo doesn't have the title and to embarrass him at his home in Massachusetts, he would accept the challenge for Battleground. Williams wanted the smoke, it got heated, and Breaker eventually accepted, only for next week. Overall, strong segment both ways. Tricks, one issue on the mic is he goes so freaking fast, he loses himself. If he learns to just slow down a little bit, he is going to be absolutely dynamite on the stick. This was easily the best Braun has been talking as a heel since like the turn a couple weeks ago, but he did lose his place at the end and he kind of stumbled through the finish. This is why Breaker didn't get called up. He's not ready as a character and there's also no rush due to his age. I think he's just turned 25. Still not overly enthusiastic about the rematch at Battleground, but I am curious about next week's match. Later in the parking lot, Trick dapped up Apollo Crews. Apollo put him over as having a really bright feature in NXT, telling him that if he keeps grinding and busting his ass, he'll be the one getting called up next year. This was a moment that had no real reason like to be on TV, but it was incredibly smart to give Williams that rub ahead of a huge match with Breaker next week. I love little touches like that. Indy Hartwell went to the ring in the main event of NXT, holding her title while in a walking boot and crutches. She put over the black and gold NXT and the prestige of the women's championship. She recalled how she was doubted until she found the way and got over with the fans, which gave her confidence to win the title. Indy revealed that she suffered a high ankle sprain and gutted through it last week to prove that she's a fighting champion. She revealed the combination of her injury and being drafted to Raw will result in a tournament to crown a new champion ending at Battleground. And she wrapped it up with, quote, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. She got a big pop after that. Then she left a big uh, lip print on the title, put it down in the middle of the ring and made a funny comment about like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of here with this crutches and all this stuff. When suddenly Dexter Loomis appeared from underneath the ring to carry her out and she gave a thumbs up with another pop as she went into the back. Back in the ring, Tiffany Stratton and Cora Jade did a tug of war with the title only to get attacked with a bevy of other women uh, all kind of rummaging around and, and brawling with each other. NXT ended in a full-on fight. For those of you wondering, you can have a high ankle sprain that heals in three to four weeks, but you can also have one that takes months to heal. They probably should have kayfabed this a little bit more to make it a more serious injury and explain the title being relinquished, but the injury combined with her being drafted, it made a vacation of it a sensible decision. One does wonder though, given she retained the title last Tuesday, was she actually going to get called up if she wasn't injured? Would she have been called up but still defended the title at Battleground if she wasn't injured? Or was the plan for someone else to be called up, but they made a switch given Indy had to drop the strap? It doesn't matter at the end of the day, but it is a curiosity that I have coming out of that segment. It was a really sweet promo from Indy. Uh, it was touching to see her get such a strong crowd reaction in her last NXT moment. The Loomis appearance was a brilliant touch to wrap it up. With the rest of the way, other than Austin Theory on Raw, 
I have almost no doubt they're going to reform the group. And that's going to be great, though theory was a really big comedy part of it. Maybe they will find someone to fill a similar brother type role. Anyway, it was a nice moment for Indy. Really happy for her. The women's tag team championship was on the line. Alba Fire and Isla Dawn defending against Caden Carter and Katana Chance. The heels cut one final like seance promo promising to seal the fates of the faces across not just NXT, but all three brands. The KCs later put themselves over as a team and focused on leaving NXT as the tag team champions. This was built as the first time a SmackDown team and Raw team competed for the NXT title, which like is technically true, but they said the new rosters don't begin until May 8th. So really not true. Uh, Chance hit a great pendulum corkscrew crossbody outside. The champions hit the backstabber Swanton Bomb finisher for a broken fall with Katana busting her nose all the way open. Uh, Carter, interestingly, took out fire with Sister Abigail. Uh, then Chance hit a code breaker on Dawn. The faces followed with their assisted elevated 450 finisher that still doesn't have a name uh, for another broken fall. Chance pushed Dawn into the ropes, knocking fire down. Then the faces hit a double Spanish fly on fire for a false finish. I actually thought that was going to end the match. Alba stopped a Huracarana swinging Katana into Caden, then combined with Isla for a tag team gory bomb flatliner, I think, for the one, two, three to retain the tag team titles. The crowd was actually a bit disappointing in this match. The wrestling was a bit slow for reasons I actually couldn't figure out, but the match was laid out tremendously. Most of the moves were executed quite well, and the extended finishing sequence I thought was fantastic. The pacing caps this at like 3.75 stars B+, but it basically had every other element going for it. Hell of a match to end their full-time careers in NXT, and now we wait to see exactly what will come of the women's tag team titles. If I had to take a guess at this juncture, I think we're going to get the titles merged at Night of Champions, Liv Morgan and Raquel Rodriguez against Alba Fire and Isla Dawn with the women's tag team champions operating across all three brands as originally intended. Will that happen? We'll find out, but that is my guess at this juncture. Uh, Dragon Lee fought JD McDonough. JD was backstage ready to head to Raw and leave NXT on a high note when Noam Dar walked up asking him to injure Dragon Lee in their match so that way Dragon would stay away from the Heritage Cup. McDonough threatened to take the cup himself and Dar eventually walked down to the ring with it after the bell once the match started. There was a cool spot with Dragon sitting up from a tree of woe with JD's basement dropkick ending up with his like crotch nailing the post from the inside of the ring. Dragon went on a run with a tope and a coup de gras. McDonough came back with a Death Valley driver on the apron. Dragon beat a count at 9.9, hitting a snap German suplex and poison Rana only to get absolutely leveled by a lariat. Dragon countered into a Liger Bomb, but JD came back with an avalanche Spanish fly and a brainbuster for a false finish. Dragon immediately came back with a Canadian Destroyer and super kicked Dar's head off outside. JD took advantage of that distraction with Devil Inside for the one, two, three. And with that, JD McDonough went out with a banger. Dragon hit Dar with a tope and brawled with him all the way to the back as JD got a standing ovation from the Performance Center. Now, normally you want the guy leaving the territory to go out on their back. But with this being a raw call-up and the main roster fans possibly watching NXT to find out who these people are, it made plenty of sense for him to get the win with a distraction finish that protected Dragon Lee. This was between four stars and 4.25 stars, A minus A, definitely in the excellent range, and it was a great send-off for McDonough. 
The North American Championship was on the line. Wesley defending against Drew Gulak. Tyler Bate was the second for Wes, who started this thing on fire. Charlie Dempsey pulled him out of the ring, but Bate equalized with a jumping European uppercut off the steel steps. Back inside, Wes hit Gulak with the cardiac kick to retain the title. Short breakdown here, but that's mostly because large stretches of this match were purposely slow because Gulak was working his style. Another nice showcase for Wes. He continues this workhorse title reign, which really is unlike anything that we've seen in NXT, if memory serves. So that remains pretty cool. Uh, Gigi Dolan fought JC Jane. Gigi's brother, Miles, was in the crowd as planned. She slammed JC into the steel steps with Jane getting busted open hard away in the head. She ended up with like half a crimson mask by the time the match was over. JC came back, tugged Gigi by the arm into the top turnbuckle, and then hit a spinning kick to get the win in a short match. Then she ran Gigi into the steps and stomped her head while taunting her brother. We've now had two matches between them, with JC getting injured in both of them, and each match ending in only a couple of minutes. I presume the plan was for a couple quick matches and then a long rubber match, but it's extremely odd for one, let alone two matches in a blood feud, no pun intended, to end in that fashion. It's strange because this feud is hot, like people actually care about it, but the matches have both been shit and they are both capable of way better than this. So it's really strange for them not to be putting on better work in the ring. Now, as long as it ends well, all's probably going to be forgiven, but it has been really disappointing thus far. My hope, my expectation is a rubber match at Battleground with a stipulation and that Gigi Dolan ultimately wins, but we will see what happens. Dijak in a video promo warned Isla Dragunov that the attack last week is what happens when he dares to come into the same arena as Dijak. He said he left him alive just enough to fully break him in the ring next week on NXT. And my opinion on Dijak remains the same. It is by far his best gimmick since joining WWE. But this 80s, 90s action movie villain corniness, it's going to be tough for him to overcome. Joe Gacy fought Joe Coffey. Uh, Gacy watched film of Coffee before promising Dyad he would get the job done for them. They promised if he succeeded, they would make him proud. The stipulation here was if Gacy lost, Dyad could never challenge Gallus for the titles again. But of course, if he won, they would get a title shot. Coffee straight up destroyed Gacy. And he would have been pinned too if Dyad didn't literally put his foot on the rope to save him. Ava jumped in the ring and sold being hit by Coffee with Gacy catching him blind with that handspring lariat finisher for the win, and Dyad got the title opportunity. Ivy Nile and the Creed Brothers backstage watched. Uh, she said she was sick of seeing Ava successfully help Schism. Uh, Coffee running through Gacy and getting the pin would have made a ton of sense. Giving Dyad another title match when they're leaving the company inside of six months does not. This is one of those deals where I guess we just have to see it completely play out before judging, but seeing Coffee straight up murder Gacy for most of the match I will say that was quite entertaining. Danny Palmer had her NXT TV debut match against Tatum Paxley. Palmer was in a full split stretch while doing a FaceTime early backstage with Sol Ruka. Gonna look good, but she's got me saying, hey now! When uh, Hank Walker and Tank Ledger ran over to her to give her a pre-match cheer, Obafemi then walked by with a death stare for the guys. Palmer hit a hanging hurricanrana and flipped all over the place as counters during this match. Paxley got some creative offense with a really cool twisting elbow from a standing position. Palmer hit a neckbreaker, rolled through a pin with a flip over, inverted DDT, and nailed a great uh, lowdown, the D'Lo Brown frog splash with the hands between the legs for the victory. Now, I said this about Obafemi 
last week. I don't need to see much more. Danny Palmer has it. You have it. You couldn't get rid of it. You couldn't sell it if you wanted to. You are it. She's got the athletic talent, the selling, the look, the entire package to be an absolute star in WWE. This may have been the best frog splash I've ever seen from a women's wrestler, at least the most height that I can remember one getting on a frog splash. She is capable of a better finisher, but let me tell you, we will be talking about Tiffany Stratton and Sol Ruka and plenty of the other women in NXT, but Palmer, if she really hunkers down and wants this type of role, she could possibly become like the female Seth Rollins. The innate ability is clearly there and she's already selling well. Great debut, great stuff from Paxley also. She's gotten the short end of the stick in NXT. Hopefully, this is the start of more feature spots for her as well. Andre Chase canceled the class with the Chase U students already in the room. That freaked out Thea Hale. Duke Hudson decided to teach instead. He plopped down a Duke University manual on the podium. Rather than rant at the students, he had them tear up their pop quizzes. Now, they've been teasing this for a long time, which is unfortunate to some degree because Hudson has really worked as like a legitimate Chase U member. I'm interested to see where this goes, though. Uh, Vaughn Wagner was going over photos of his father wrestling for WWE with Mr. Stone backstage when Stone came across pictures of Vaughn as a baby in a hospital bed with like a ton of stitches in his head. Stone tried to like coax an explanation out of him. Vaughn refused. He slammed the book closed and he was done for the day. It was also noted here that Wagner being a free agent in the WWE draft does not mean he's getting called up exactly, but that he's available out of NXT when needed. Clearly, they are going with this sympathy angle for Wagner and perhaps some of his, how to say this, uh, some of the differences in his look and speech pattern will be explained based on whatever it is that happened to him as a kid. I'll say it definitely has my curiosity. Uh, Brooks Jensen returned to the bar apologizing to Josh Briggs and Fallon Henley. They accepted him back and everyone put each other over. Jensen said he learned from Keanu James that the land the bar is on is worth a lot of money. The family can sell some of that land and settle all the debts of the business. Never mind the fact that we've seen exterior shots and know that this is like in an outdoor mall in Orlando. Uh, then two hot girls came up to him uh, wanting to chill with Brooks, but he decided to hang with his friends instead. The acting remained obviously C-level here, but at least we're getting some character development with Jensen. I just wish they'd give these guys something more serious to chew on. Eddie Thorpe was being interviewed after ring training when Damon Kemp threw him an empty water bottle, kind of like as a hazing move. Hey, pick up my trash. It obviously got contentious with Thorne challenging Kemp. He declined, though, repeating that he actually likes Thorpe and didn't want to embarrass him at the start of his career. The acting on this was like Al Pacino compared to the Briggs and Jensen segment. Point of it being, this at least felt like a real natural interaction. Axiom fought scripts. Axiom got caught before the bell despite being prepared for the exact same type of attack literally last week. Scripps was in a slightly improved but still awful mask. The look, and look, we don't really judge bodies here, but Reggie has clearly gained some weight. Uh, Scripps hit a crazy flipping move off the lip of the announce table and then an absolutely perfect moonsault. Axiom then flipped him over from flat feet with an immediate pump knee to the head. Scripps dodged Golgen ratio and came back with a running corkscrew crossbody. Axiom then countered a 450 with a super kick and hit golden ratio to get the win. Axiom went to leave. Instead, he decided, you know what? I'm going to help this guy up. So he gives him a hand. Scripps rises and then punched him in the face. So Axiom slugged him back and tore off the mask. The crowd immediately started chanting Reggie. 
And look, the truth about Scripps, Reggie, whatever, he's athletic. He has a modicum of skill. There's no doubt. But the gimmick is absolute shit. If this ends the gimmick, great. I have no idea what else they can do with him. But let's see how creative this NXT creative team can get and try to make something of Reggie. And lastly, there was a recap style video package shown of Nikita Lyons, Wendy Chu, and Sol Ruka all being attacked backstage and in the parking lot of NXT. They're, of course, all out for a while. So one presumes the only reason that they showed a video package of this was because they're going to reveal the attacker sooner than later, or at least start a storyline that will end up happening on television with a reveal in the near future. So that was this week's NXT. I did find it to be an extremely entertaining episode, like two matches, 3.75 star caliber or better. Uh, The debut of Danny Palmer on TV, super impressive. Decent build for Braun Breaker and Carmelo Hayes and some other interesting stuff as well. So overall, a super entertaining edition of NXT. They've been on relative fire recently. The ratings haven't been great. They're going up against the NBA and NHL playoffs, of course. But this is the type of show they need to be producing. If they can just kind of keep this up and try to do some crossover stuff with the main roster. I don't know why they aren't consistently doing that with both Raw and SmackDown. Try to do crossover stuff. Get people to watch your program. Give them reasons to see superstars they like on your show. We know for a fact that bumps ratings. Figure out a way to do it consistently. NXT, good show. And people who only listen to these recaps and don't watch, I really do suggest you watch because I am entertained by it almost every single week. All right, folks, that wraps up this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Of course, the third of four episodes coming this week in the Getting Over universe. We already have our WWE Backlash Ultimate Preview Show, which also gave a full reaction to the WWE Draft. That is in our podcast feed. The Silver King's one-on-one sit-down interview with LWO member and leader of Legado del Fantasma, Santos Escobar. That is already in your podcast feed. We just wrapped up the AEW and NXT episode, which means the only thing left is an instant analysis podcast for WWE Backlash coming Saturday night as soon as that show goes off the air. Between now and then, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, not only for episode drops, news analysis highlights, and all those good things, but we want you to vote in our pre- and post-show polls ahead of WWE Backlash and following WWE Backlash. That way, we can discuss those grades on the Instant Analysis Podcast, and we want you to join us live on Twitter Spaces early Saturday evening for a WWE Backlash pre-show. You guys get to communicate with us, ask questions, provide comments, join us talking live to whoever is listening. It is a great time. Again, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Also, do not forget, I happen to love the number five. So join us over at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over for bonus audio, news posts, and become an official getting overhead by contributing financially to the show. We appreciate you all so much. And whether you do that or not, please also remember that this podcast is all about Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Thank you all so much for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. The Silver King has been going hard the last three days, so I'm going to rest my voice and sign off, leaving you with three final words. Bye for now.